recognize the shift behind me. If you don't know it by sight, you will know it by name. That is the Titanic. The Titanic took three years, 3,000 people, and the equivalent of $400 million to construct. And she was the largest, most modern, luxurious ship of her day. And she was also considered to be the safest. In fact, it's reported that a crew member, as he got uh, aboard the Titanic, uh, said to someone, God himself could not sink this ship. And yet, during her maiden voyage on April 14, 1912, at 11.40 p.m., after receiving six warnings, all of them disregarded, she struck this And Titanic became the only ocean liner ever in history to be sunk by an iceberg. And for all of her strength and sophistication, for all of her state-of-the-art technology, less than three hours later, the Titanic lie broken in half at the bottom of the ocean. And nearly 70% of her passengers went down with her or next to her. The temperature in the water was 28 degrees Fahrenheit, and most of those who jumped overboard died in 15 to 30 minutes, but not from drowning, from cardiac arrest. The Titanic simply was not equipped with enough lifeboats. Everyone thought she was invincible. And that night, in the frozen water of the North Atlantic Sea, there were only two categories of people. Those who were perishing and those who were being saved. And the Bible paints a picture of the world that very sadly is much like this. The earth is so full of human achievement and technology and strength and power. We've built great economies. We've healed diseases. We've mastered communications. We've explored space. Years ago, we mapped the human genome. Years ago, we unlocked the secrets of the atom, and now we're on to bigger things and better things. It seems that there's nothing we put our minds to that we cannot achieve. Anything is possible. The human race is all but invincible. God himself could not sink this ship. However, the Bible teaches that we are sinking, but that it wasn't God who sunk us. In fact, God warned us of the iceberg. He called it sin and said that it would be our undoing. He invited us to safe waters, to turn around, to trust him, to run towards him. But we disregarded, we steered ahead anyway. And the iceberg of sin has crushed us. And that now, even though most aren't even aware of it, all of us have fallen overboard. And that this explains much of our experience in life. Our world is a world of war and abuse and poverty and crime and racism and disappointment and loss and hopelessness and death. And if all is well, if the human race is indeed invincible, then none of these things should be. But the suffering of our world, like the stinging cold of that water, alerts us that there's a problem here. 
and it hints to us that we are not invincible after all, that we are shipwrecked. And Paul writes here, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This passage begins by teaching us that every person in all the world falls into one of two categories. There are those who are perishing, and there are those who are being saved. And the difference is one thing. Rescue. The only hope for the human race is rescue. And God has made a way for that. God longs with a fatherly affection to pull us out of the water, place us on solid ground with safety and warmth and protection and rest. But we are told that that rescue is not going to look like what we think and that God is going to accomplish it in the most unexpected, unpredictable, unorthodox way. He is going to use an implement of death to bring us life. And that is, Paul says, the cross. And to some, this is going to feel like folly. It will seem as though it is nonsense, foolishness, silliness. But Paul says to others, to those who are being rescued, he says it will be the power of God. Is the cross folly or is it power? That's the question that Paul is going to address here in this passage. And that's the question that we're going to think a bit about this morning. What Paul does is he begins by showing the incomparable wisdom of God. Look at the next verse. For it is written, Paul writes, quoting a promise from the Old Testament book, of Isaiah, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And what Paul is starting out to say is that the message of the cross lands like a hand grenade into the weightiest wisdom of the wise and the deepest discernment of the discerners to the point where he goes on to say rhetorically, where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater? He says, your best minds, your deepest thinkers, your most studied scholars, your sharpest debaters with all of their knowledge and philosophy and reasoning, he says, sound like the ramblings of a groggy toddler. They can't stand before God. They fled away from his presence with their heads in their tails. Paul says, there is no debate. He says, hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And then he goes on in verse 21, and he writes this. He says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Paul says, Since the world cannot find God through wisdom, God decided to rescue people using something that seems entirely foolish instead. So, what is the wisdom of the world and what is God's seemingly foolish response? Well, one very simple way to to 
define what's meant here by the wisdom of the world. It's simply this way. The wisdom of the world is trying to answer the questions of God and life apart from the cross. Wisdom of the world is trying to find the answers to the questions of God and life apart from the cross. And Paul is going to say that there's two ways primarily that this is done. And he says it in verse 22. He says, for the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. And so what he's saying here is that the wisdom of the world is represented by the Jews and by the Greeks and all of the worldly wisdom in some way fits into both of these categories or one or the other. He says, first of all, the Jews demand signs. Okay, now, when Jesus was on earth, if you're familiar with the New Testament, particularly the Gospels, what you'll notice as you read them is that the Jews were always asking Jesus to perform miracles, right? Wine at a wedding, feeding the 5,000. Jesus did many of them. But what, they, what happened was, even though he, they, he did that, excuse me, they still didn't believe. They would just want another sign. And they kept saying, show me a miracle and we'll believe you. And he would show them miracles and they didn't. And what the Jews wanted from Jesus was they wanted something big and obvious. What they were looking for from God was primarily an experience. The Jews wanted to find God through an experience of God. Okay, now, this looks a little bit different for us for the most part today. But the truth is we do the same kind of thing. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've heard, and maybe you've heard a person say something like this, God, if you will just do X, then I will believe. If you will just heal my grandma, if you will just get me a new job, if I could just get married, if you would just change my spouse, if I could just overcome some problem or snag or complication in my life, if you could just break me out of the bland and ordinary and give me a, wow, that must have been God kind of a moment, then I'll believe. Then I'll follow you. God, I want to see something, or God, I want to feel something, or God, I want to be able to do something. And what that is, is that is trying to find God through an experience. Okay, and this can be very, very subtle. When when I uh, graduated from high school that summer, I decided to be a camp counselor at a Christian camp in Um, Michigan. And so I had to go to a counselor training and there was about 50 of us who were there together. I was feeling a little distant from God at that time. And uh, the person who was in charge after we finished our training and and the evening before the kids would come, they said, we're going to do something that um, has been really meaningful for people for years and years. They said, we're going to send you out in the woods for a couple of hours with just your Bible. And give you an opportunity to spend some time with God and to read the Bible and pray. And I was looking forward to it because I love the woods and I, and I really you know, love to connect to God that way um, by myself. And so they took me out into the middle of nowhere in the woods and the other 50 of us, you know, they, they, they spread us all out. And um, I um, sat down and I had such a great time for about 15 seconds. And uh, then the mosquitoes found me, okay? 
And I was wearing shorts and a T-shirt, and I had a jacket. But it was so bad, it was like I, I, had, I had found their kingdom, and I was sitting right by it. Um, and they, they just all came over, and the whole time, the two, the two hours, I literally curled up into a ball trying to cover my legs with my jacket, and I was miserable. And I was so happy when they finally came and picked us back up, and they brought us into a large room, and somebody stood up and said, okay, everyone, could, one of, we have a few volunteers. You can come up and, and tell us about your experience. And I remember there was a girl who got up. I don't remember her exact words, but this is basically what she said. She said, I went out into this experience struggling with the question of whether or not God loved me. And she said, I asked God, do you love me? And she said, and just at that moment, a hawk flew down and landed right in front of me. And she said, and I knew he did love me. And I thought, how should I interpret my experience? (laughs) God sent her a hawk. He sent me a swarm. If you love me, God, bring the mosquitoes to me. And you know what I really thought? I really felt bad. I remember thinking, she must have done something right. I must have done something wrong. What does it mean she got a hawk and I got mosquitoes? Have I done something wrong? Have I failed God somehow? Have I let him down? What does this mean? What does my experience tell me? This can be so subtle. We can even come this morning doing exactly the same thing. We can come in here to a service like this and we can say, the music better touch my heart this morning. I better feel something because then I'll know how God feels about me. Or we might say, Paul's message better speak exactly to this issue that I'm dealing with. And if it does, then I'll know that God is with me. But if it doesn't impact me, where is he? I want to see something. I want to feel something. I want to experience something. Then I'll know it's true. Then I'll know God's with me. Then I'll trust him. Then I'll walk with him. And Paul says here, we can go around and around and around looking for signs. We can try to figure it all out. We can try to find all the answers to the pressing questions of life through our experience. But God says the most extraordinary, the most heartbreaking thing I have ever done I did for you. And I have already proven to you everything I ever need to prove at the cross. All of the answers to life cannot be found through experience, but only here. There is nothing more we need than this. The Greeks were a little bit different. They didn't tend to seek the answers to life's pressing questions through signs. They seek the answers through wisdom. Now, the heroes of Greece were their thinkers, And those who did not appreciate their wisdom were treated as if they were Neanderthals, okay? They were so proud of their great knowledge, and and yet they were very puffed up and very arrogant. And their wisdom said to God, we've observed the world. We've considered things and mulled it all over. Our best minds, our deepest thinkers, our most studied scholars, and our sharpest debaters have concluded. And we think life should work 
this way. And we think, God, that you should think how we think because we are sophisticated. And we really don't need you. We know better. We are invincible, so let us live our life our way and do not offend and do not challenge our wisdom because that only annoys us. And, And this, again, is not just an issue for the Greeks, but for all of us. It's a demand that everything that God does or thinks makes sense to me. It's a requirement that he fits all of my boxes and all of my categories and does things exactly how I would do them if I were him. There can be no mystery. There can be nothing I don't understand. There can be nothing that I'm uncomfortable with. And above all, the Bible must contain nothing that offends me. Otherwise, I will throw it away. Or maybe I'll just keep the parts I like. And maybe instead of being the objective, authoritative, helpful truth of God, it becomes instead like a buffet. It's a mixture of some good advice and some inspirational ideas and then all that other stuff that I don't really need or want. And so I'll receive the things that I like, I'll reject the things that I don't like, and I will be the filter of what is right and wrong and good and true. My insight stands above God's insight. And this, just as a little tangent here, is so important in our day. I mean, 50 years ago, for the most part, being a Christian was culturally accepted. Okay, but beyond that, it was actually very much respected in many parts. But all of that is changing. And more and more, Christians are seen as Neanderthals. Some of the voices in the world call us foolish and intolerant and backwards. The Bible is considered to be an offense. Are you prepared for those voices to grow stronger and louder. And when they do, who are you going to trust? The voice of this age, the scholars, the wise, the debaters, the voice of the culture, the voice of the media, the voice of your friends at work, your friends on Facebook. Will you trust your own voice? Or will you trust God's voice? Who will be your king? And so the Jews seek God through signs. The Greeks seek God through wisdom. But Paul goes on to say, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so, in summary, the Jews come to God saying, our experience stands above you. And the Greeks come to God saying, our insight stands above you. And God comes to the Jews and the Greeks and to you and me and says, nothing stands above me. 
And what God says here is that we cannot come to him demanding an experience. And we cannot come to him demanding that he conform to what we think. We can only come to him one way. His way. And his way is through Christ crucified. Do you see how offensive this is? The Bible never claims to be a book that's not offensive. So let's consider for a few minutes why Christ crucified is such a stumbling block. Why is the idea of a crucified Christ such a terrible offense? And to do that, what I want to do is I want to go back to the Titanic, okay? I want you to use your imagination for a few minutes, and I want you to pretend that you are on a ship like that, okay? But we'll say it's modern day. We'll say that you took a uh, job on a fishing boat in Alaska, and the ship has gone down. And you've jumped into the frozen water of the Bering Sea, and you are all alone. No one else has survived, and there is no lifeboat. And you are trying to stay afloat in the water, but you're in shock. Your entire body stings from the cold. Your breath is labored, and all around you, all that you can see is just vast ocean. But you find a piece of driftwood, and you cling to it with all of your might, and you know that you only have minutes left in your body. You are dying. Now, Does it make sense to say that in this situation, wisdom is worthless? That no amount of reasoning or planning or strategy or insight or skill or competence is going to save you? Or for that matter, no emotional experience or outside sign from God is ever going to be enough? Well, the gospel tells us that apart from God, our condition is hopeless. And that the one thing we need is the one thing that we do not have, and that is power. Power over our own destiny. And what God is so helpfully trying to show us in this passage is that the answers to life's problems do not lie in human insight or human experience. We don't just need more or better education or philosophy or government or technology or engineering or, or in, excuse me, ingenuity. God says what we need is a rescuer. And he says, and we will perish without one. But it isn't this idea alone that seems so foolish to the world. It's the very means of God's rescue that does too. The gospel to many gets even more foolish. Let me, let me continue with the, the illustration. Imagine now that you're back in that water. Okay, you've, you've been in there for three or, or four or five minutes and you are suffering. You are scared. You are desperate. You're thinking of your friends and your family back home and and you cling to that driftwood for all of your life with all of your hope. And then unexpectedly, a man floats over 
You can't tell if he's alive or not, but he, he lifts up his head and, and you think, wow, he's, he's in worse shape than I am. His clothes are tattered. His teeth are chattering. He looks horrible. His breath is labored. He's struggling just to keep his head above the water. And he whispers something to you just barely. You, you almost can't even hear it. He says, I'm here to rescue you. And you think to yourself, how is this guy going to help? You think, what, what I need right now is a helicopter to swoop down. What I need is somebody from a great, strong ship to pull me aboard. But this man says to you, I'm here for you. And he says, throw away the piece of driftwood. He says, let it go and I'll save you. He says, no one else is coming. And the cross is so foolish to some because God does not come to this world how we expect and because he asks us to give up all other hope. God meets human suffering shockingly with suffering of his own. He dives into the cold water of our world without a wetsuit. We're told he comes to rescue us as a suffering Savior. The Bible teaches that Christ lay down his crown, that he lay down all the treasures of heaven to become a man, and that he came not in riches but in poverty. He came not in honor but in disgrace. He came not in strength, but in weakness. He came not in wisdom, but in folly. The world wanted a king, but they got a carpenter instead. And he was rejected. He was treated with utter utter contempt. And then, unthinkably, he was crucified. The ugliest, most humiliating deaths of any death And to many, especially of that day, this was not just revolting, but this was completely illogical. And beyond that, it was an offense. But the gospel gets even more offensive than that. Because Christ claimed, I am the only way. He said, I am the only rescue. All other paths you could take will lead to death. There is life in me and in me alone. And all of the world, in all of its wisdom, cannot understand this. The world says, no, we are good. We are wise. We are strong. We do not need to be rescued. We do not need God. And so, the crucifixion of Christ is a stumbling block. It's foolish, it's silly, it's like a myth, it's like a legend. It's unsophisticated. Well, Paul ends this section with an exclamation point. It's kind of a wonderful and terrifying summary statement. He says in verse 25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. And what he's saying 
is that, your deepest thinking and understanding. The greatest total insights that you've ever had are more foolish than the stupidest thought God has ever had. And he says, and the greatest and most impressive accomplishments you've ever achieved in all of history are feeble and small compared to God's most unproductive day. Paul says, his weakness towers over your strength. And his foolishness shreds your wisdom. And what God is saying here is simply this, that we are so much humbler than we think we are. And this is an offense to many. Now, if this is an offense to you, this, this may be. I don't want you to miss one thing. There's one thing about this passage that's so important to understand, and it is the context of all of it, and that is this. This passage is not meant to be an insult. It's meant to be an invitation. God does not just say here, your strength isn't enough. He says, take my strength and make it yours. God doesn't just say, your wisdom is not enough. He says, I'm offering you mine. He says, wisdom and power belong to me. Have it, keep it, take it, enjoy it. It is right here through the cross. When we come to God humbly as a sinner, desperate and drowning, when we agree with God that all my wisdom and all my experience could never be enough, when we say to God, I've done wrong, I've steered my ship away from you, and my sin is crushing me, I am dead in my trespasses and sin. And when we stand before the cross and we see our Savior in our place, dying for our sin, giving up his life to redeem us from the grave. When Christ is at once both our lion-hearted rescuer and our suffering, sacrificial lamb, and we call out to him, help me, save me, rescue me, forgive me, he will never turn his back. The Bible says God is mighty to save that he will lift us up out of the water and bring us from death to life, from the grave to glory, from the wind and the waves to solid ground. And now the weakness of God becomes our strength and the foolishness of God becomes our wisdom. For though the word of the cross is folly, to those who are perishing, to us who are being saved, Paul says, it is the power of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for your wisdom and your power, which we just get the the smallest taste of through this passage here this morning. We thank you that you have not abandoned any of us, 
and that you offer us life, you offer us help, you offer us rescue and a future through the sacrifice of your own son. We pray that you would help us to see how humble we are. We pray you would help us to see our need. We pray that you would help us to see your strength and your wisdom through the cross. And we thank you that you invite all of us to come. In Jesus' name.